Hey, it's Yana Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we start off by diving back into the racist poster that was found in BC for mothers and children. And if this is sadly more common than we initially believed. And speaking of children, we break down how much it costs to raise a kid in Canada. And spoiler alert, it's not so cheap. We also speak to a brave woman who decided she wanted to give an honest obituary about her father instead of a nice one. And why this might be something we see become more common. We also dive further into how one company got over 351 children sick and why retirees are having to return to work and why we might be seeing body cams on soccer referees very soon. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can make you be at your best. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody there. My fr- my folks and my friends here in the studio with me, everyone's dressed up, and uh, I'm the only one that has a costume on. My buddy Santiago, he's dressed up as a turkey today. Looks amazing. Uh, I don't know how you can record with all those feathers and stuff, but these guys go all out, I'm sure. Uh, nice to be young, right? To be excited about holidays and things like that and look, kind of looking forward to getting together with family and friends, but not for everybody because there's people out there, man, that just don't, want to go and visit everybody, aren't comfortable with things like the amount of alcohol consumption, perhaps if they're working on their own, uh, recovery for, you know, from any form of, uh, substance abuse, right. But moreover, it's about the toxic relationships that we sometimes have when we're in family scenarios and it may not be mom and dad or any of your siblings, but if you got a bunch of siblings, typically one of them out of the number of them, you probably don't jive with, but that's okay. It's one thing not to get along and maybe disagree on stuff. It's another thing to be completely toxic. Yeah, man, imagine, hang on that for a minute. Imagine having to go somewhere, feeling forced to go somewhere, guilted into going somewhere, knowing that you're not going to feel at your best. That's kind of what we're all about here, talking about this kind of stuff. And, you know, a little lighter, a little heavier, depends on the subject. But for some people, it's really debilitating. Like I'm telling you, like they can't get out of bed to go to a function or they're uncomfortable with showing up at something social because of their social anxiety and there's lots of people there and, and they don't know everyone and they're not comfortable getting out of their own space. And lots of people feel forced to be friendly during public holidays. You know, it's like, you th- imagine walking around a mall and someone wishes you a Merry Christmas and you look back and grunt at them and don't say anything. They're going to walk away thinking, wow, not a very nice person. So you're kind of forced to be nice to everybody. Well, Thanksgiving's kind of the same way, except more about family. It's typically not too much of a community event unless you're part of a community that celebrates like that. And that's wonderful too. But even more so for people that have difficult times at social gatherings or are part of situations that aren't set up for them to be at their best. And how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the social anxiety and the, the family, you know, the toxic family situation and, you know, anybody who's, you know, smoking, drinking, whatever is going on at a time that you don't want to be. How do you get around that? That's the question. So you have to ask yourself, what options do I have? What's a plan B or C, Right mom's plan or grandma's plan or auntie's plan or your sister's plan or your wife's plan, your husband's plan. Someone's plan is to go do something, right? That plan should ideally match with you if they're a partner, 
But if it doesn't, and no, someone's not thinking of you like a secondary family member, like a mother, a father, or an aunt and uncle, somebody who's having an event, they're not thinking about how it affects you, then you need to figure out how it affects you. And you know, at the end of the day, you can always show up the next day with the lunch or an early dinner or suggest going out for brunch somewhere where you'll pay the bill, where alcohol is likely not to be served. And if you're at a function where there's 35 family members, I remember, I remember having certain times uh, in, in my uh, family, you know, in my life where there was, you know, 75, 80 people at a, at a Passover dinner. And, you know, I didn't get along with all of them. That's for sure. And, you know, looking back, a lot of drinking going on that, you know, probably shouldn't have been around so many kids. Anyway, I digress. My point is that all these scenarios are wonderful to celebrate. And it's wonderful to be around people that you love and that you trust and that make you feel good about yourself. So if you find yourself in a situation that, you know, you're not quite sure if you're going to walk into a bit of a hornet's nest, you can always go in with an escape plan, right? That's another thing to do. And get out of your head. Try not to anticipate something horrible happening before anything actually happens. So that's an anxiety thing, right? That's a, a fearful thing. That's, you know, getting in your head and convincing yourself that this might happen, this might happen, and this might happen. What if, you know, what if that happens? What if that happens? More often than not, it doesn't happen. Pretty much all the time it doesn't happen. We seem to fabricate horrible things in our head. Don't do it. And if that's what you're conjuring up because last year that's what it was like, then it's a probably a in good indication that you don't want to go. And if you feel uncomfortable, you can always explain that you're feeling uncomfortable. I'm not feeling great. You don't have to describe why. You don't have to explain that it's a mental health issue. And don't necessarily go. And you can celebrate another day, a day early, a day late. Either way, it's a celebration. So don't feel trapped. You don't have to do what you don't feel like doing. There's no such thing as guilt-ridden obligations. You are obligated to be honest with people, I think. And I think that leads to much better relationships. So you don't end up having a whole scenario with your mom or family member or somebody. I keep mentioning moms. I'm sorry to do that. They're wonderful moms and could be an issue with your dad, could be an issue with a brother, sister, a sibling of some sort, an aunt, an uncle, you know, someone's live-in, someone's, you know, whatever. Step this or step that or in-law that. You never know, right? People come together. You don't necessarily get to vote when they become extended family members. And who knows what's going on? Everybody's got stuff, right? So I'm just suggesting just because it's family doesn't make it safe. You got to determine if it's safe for you. And if it is, go and have an incredible time. And if it's not, either put your foot in the, you know, in the water, your toe in the water with an escape plan, or figure out something else around your uh, comfort zone that makes that celebration more worthwhile for you and for the person you're going to be with and kind of reduces the, uh, the, the chance of it being a, a not pleasant uh, opportunity or not pleasant experience, right? Anyway, I'm with you either way. Happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy yourself. Make it the best Thanksgiving ever. But I'll tell you, if you're living in uh, parts of Alberta right now, or parts of BC, excuse me, you're not feeling uh, at your best, I think, as you understand that there's still stuff going on. We talked about this last week a little bit and I don't want to dwell on it too much but you know there are still posters sprouting up in British Columbia that are pointing to an alarming reality that uh, Canadian racism is definitely not gone it's definitely not moved past where we thought we were when we talked about it you know last week in terms of a we thought one-off poster outside a daycare you know program for only white parents and children well, now we're seeing something that says uh, there is a sign up in 
Coquitlam, uh, Vancouver, which seems to be a hotbed for this kind of um, supremacy-type thinking, white supremacy-type thinking. Uh, the posters advertise playgroups of whites-only mums and tots in the metro Vancouver cities of Coquitlam and Port Coquitlam uh, being circulated on social media. Um, so this isn't good, right? I get that people get to make a choice. I'm all about choice, right? You get to make a choice. You can decide what schools or what programs to send your kids to. You can decide what neighborhoods you want to live in. You can decide what communities you want to be a part of. We all get to make that choice. But I don't think we get to choose. I don't think. I know we don't get to make that choice at the cost of hurting others. And in a country that just went through a whole, a whole celebration of truth and reconciliation, I don't know if you can call it a celebration, but certainly a reconciliation of a horrible scenario in our past, and hopefully in our past, this kind of behavior should never continue in any country, anywhere in the world. But what I'm talking about here are people that are acting out in ways that don't show them at their best for sure. And putting up signs that say whites only, mums and tots, Blacks only, mums and tots, greens only, mums and tots, Jews only, Catholics only, any of that stuff only, you lose me right away. Because that's not the world we live in. If that's where you want to live, there are places you can go. If you want to live in an ultra, you know, ultra supremacist, you know, lifestyle, there are places in the world where there are communities that will welcome me with open arms and essentially, hopefully, God willing, stick to themselves. Doesn't have to be in an organi- in a in a in a middle of a of a beautiful country in a beautiful province with beautiful people uh, sticking people's noses in scenarios that we don't want to really talk about. And I don't want to hear about whites are now the minority. We are what we are. We are we are in a country where people come because it's a nice, safe, healthy place to live. We can raise your children and feel safe. So that's what I got to say about that. I'm not sure what your feelings are, but. You know, I hope you can express them openly, such as my guest who's coming up. We're going to have a quick conversation with her, really not a quick one, but a conversation with her uh, about a, a, a obituary she wrote about her dad. It was brutally honest. And um, we're now talking about that. And that's, um, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting story about sheer honesty and about how that makes you feel better. Maybe at the cost of others sometimes. Interesting story. I got to tell you, I, I first read it and thought, mm, and then I read more about it and thought, well, you know, good for her. So she, the, the, we're talking about a woman. Uh, her name is Amanda Dennis. She's going to be a guest with us here in just a minute. She wanted to share, uh, you know, talk about her re- relationship with her father. She wanted to have a relationship with her father. It didn't really work out. And he passed away at the age of 74. And she wrote a, an obituary. And it starts with, I am pleased to announce the passing of my father. After suffering multiple strokes, one thankfully leaving him unable to speak, the abusive, narcissistic, absentee father, husband, brother, son, finally kicked the bucket, Dennis wrote, I prefer to call her Amanda, Amanda wrote, because he treated people with disdain, there will be no service. A lot of people talked about this, weren't quite sure if this was the right thing to do, wrong thing to do, and I kind of sat on it for a little bit and came to the conclusion, and in order to understand it, you got to understand Amanda's story, because this, in fact, could be one of the most therapeutic experiences uh, for her and perhaps for others that understand that getting this stuff off your chest is really important. And we often talk to people in grief and, stra- in, in grief and loss therapy about writing letters to the departed and actually tell them how you feel. Dear so-and-so, you son of a b- 
bitch. Or, you know, I miss you. You're the best father or mother ever. Whatever. God forbid you have to do it. But when you do it, there's lots of ways to deal with um, grief and loss and a good therapist will help you through it. Amanda did this kind of to actually reach out and share. I don't think any loving family would write an obituary like this unless it was truthful. It had to be truthful. And it's actually cathartic for me, she says. I had people reach out to me, total strangers say, are you the one that wrote that obituary? Good for you. I can relate. Thank you very much for doing this. Amanda Dennis is our guest this evening. Amanda, how are you? I'm well, thank you. I can, you know, I have been to, unfortunately, I'm at that age where I've been to way too many funerals and heard way too many obituaries. And I walk away saying to myself, that's a just, you know, I know that person. That's a bunch of BS. Like, what eyes are they seeing him through? So um, congratulations for standing up and doing the right thing for you. How did it impact others? That's a good question. From what I hear, the feedback that I've received, for the most part, it has impacted others in a positive way. They have felt probably the same freedom that I felt writing this. They are more open to writing something similar themselves for family members that they have had to deal with. Um, and it, it, it makes me, it's very bittersweet for me because I, I didn't expect this much um, recognition. I, I, I'm not one to like the limelight <laughs> whatsoever, um, but I am an extremely truthful person. And um, this is my truth, and this is a lot of people's truth. So let me uh, help you a little, a little bit, even though you didn't ask. Um, what you're doing is helping probably now tens of thousands of people that are listening to this show across the country. We broadcast across Canada. So um, I, I, I get that, you know, you did this for you, but the, you know, the darkness at the end of it when you sort of bittersweet for you is that this impact, this story, as you know, will impact many, many people who just felt so tied up in the, in the, in the, in the untruths having to be spoken yeah. at times where it's just, you know, you know, young people who come from abused families and so on. Um, this, what, what did it feel like for you? The cathartic moment, I know, but what did, sort of, how did that feel? Was it a loss of weight on your shoulders, so to speak? I don't want to put words in your mouth. How did it feel for you? It definitely was a huge weight that was lifted off. Um, especially seeing that I'm not alone. And I think that's the big thing that's come out of this, specifically for people who are in abusive situations, much like I was. We aren't alone. As a kid, you think, um, you know, this, this is a big secret and I should be hiding this and I'm so ashamed and embarrassed. You know, a lot of what my father did, um, was not talked about within my family, within, um, like, even his parents. His parents refused to to acknowledge it. And I needed the truth to come out. And there's no one here that could silence me anymore. I'm, I'm tired. I'm done with being silenced. 
Well, that, with that comes what you determine to be the limelight, but it's not really the limelight. It's a step in the right direction that, um, you know, this is, yeah. a, you know, th- th- this, you know, it, it's an obituary, but what it really does, as you can see, is it's opening the door for you to have this whole discussion about, you know, being a child of an abuser. Um, have you found, you know, the many years that you kind of lived as an adult from, I understand from reading a little more about this, that you were a bit of straight, you were estranged from your dad for a long time. Um, did you feel kind of, I don't know, uh, maybe uh, betrayed in some way that you even had to write the obituary? Like, why me? I I had a, a tiny sense of that, but no, I, I've always been one to step up to the plate. Uh, I didn't have a choice growing up, um, it, you know, because my father was the way he was. I soon and very early on learned that if I or my family needed anything, it was up to me. I was the responsible one. I was, you know, the one who had to go out and work and help my mom pay rent and buy food. And so this to me is, is just natural. It's just a something that I do. I just stand up for the family. Yeah, I stand up. Where, where, um, where, where are your siblings and is your mom still with us? No, uh, unfortunately, my mom um, suffered with cancer and passed away um, nine years ago. I'm sorry. And um, I was her caretaker, and I never left her side. And my brother, I recently lost my brother um, in December. We're talking to Amanda Dennis, a very brave woman. She wrote a, a an honest uh, obituary for her dad, who wasn't uh, a person at their best for sure, but brought out the best in Amanda's in some ways and, and uh, definitely some more soul searching. Amanda, welcome back. Thanks for being a part of it with us tonight. Um, at what point during the writing the obituary did you sort of look at it and go, am I being too honest or too, I, mean, I guess not honest is the wrong word, too harsh? Is, is my reality too harsh, too dark? I think the very first sentence <laughs> to be honest, um, but it but it it's truthful, and the reason why it's truthful is because I after the passing of my mother, it was very very hard. Um, she, you know, was the biggest cheerleader for myself and for my younger brother, and then I lost my brother in December mm. to uh, a massive stroke. He just fortunately for him just went to sleep and didn't get up. Um, And when I found myself alone on this earth with this man who, you know, was my father, it was scary for me. I, it it was like I was constantly looking over my shoulder, wondering Mm -hmm. what his next move was going to be. So you were still interacting with him at that point? I mean, there was still... At that point, no, I was not interacting. I had blocked him on most of social media. Um, But I am uh, a real estate agent in Sudbury, and so my phone number and my my website and stuff like that is out there. So he could easily have found me. And so I didn't... I, I was always, you know cautious when I opened up an email or cautious when I picked up the phone, if it was somebody calling from the BC area or whatever, mm-hmm. because I, I just didn't want to get sucked into that. I was by myself and, you know, I have a family, like a loving husband and children, 
don't get me wrong, but they were not in that situation with me right. when I was younger. So it was, it was um, a feeling of being alone, walking this earth by myself, knowing what I had gone through, um, and my mother and my brother not being here, and um, just, you know, having to basically look over my shoulder all the time and, and watch out for what might happen next. You know, that, that's a typical um, sign of someone who's lived in abuse is when they, they know that their abuser is not just jailed but dead. It seems to be the only time they can try to find some solace and get some sleep. Um, how did, how old are your kids, can I ask? My eldest daughter is 28, okay. my son is 20, and my baby boy, I call him, I'm always <laughs> going to call him that, <laughs> he's going to be 16. Yeah, I'm sure he's a monster too, right? And like he's big, <laughs> big, strong, strapping kid, and you call him your baby boy. Um, yeah. How do they feel about what mom did, and and do they did they know the stories ahead of time, or is this an eye opener for your family, like your intimate family, your husband? I mean, yeah. sure, I'm sure your husband kind of knew about it, but how did the kids act and react around all this? My kids have been ex- extremely supportive. Uh, I am always very truthful. I don't hide anything. When you grow up in an abusive home, um, there's a lot of secrets. So I didn't want to keep any secrets from my kids or my husband. We're very open and honest. Uh, My kids know how I grew up. Um, They know that they are lucky to grow up the way that they are growing up. And I hope that I'm doing parenting right. But um, they're very supportive. They are not shocked in any way that that I have been speaking this way um, because it's what I've done this whole time. I've always been honest and open with them. So now what? Now what are you going to do as as the person known for the honest obituary? Is this something you might continue to do? Maybe start a blog of some sort or some so connect with people who need the inspiration to do the same thing? Like we're, Or is this just done and gone and you carry on now with this weight off your shoulders, not having to look over your shoulder to see if... And by the way, he's only, for people listening in, the man is only, was only 74 when he passed away. Certainly not at an age where he was, you know, one would say he was a 93-year-old and, uh, you know, not much of a, not much of a threat. So um, I, I get it for sure. Um, what happens with Amanda next or is this the end of the, end of the story? I... This has been all very overwhelming for me. I am a big empath, so people sharing their stories with me, I I love, but I'm taking it all on, and it's very hard for me right now, Uh, and and my family sees it. They're like, you know, you look a little tired or you look a little worried because I'm reading these messages and texts and letters that that are being sent to me, and I'm just kind of holding on to all of this right now. So I think once after I take a little breather, once the tide has settled a little bit, um, I think I would like to continue helping people. I, I, in my job, I help people all the time, but it's different. This is something very close to home for me. Um, and I've actually just kind of thought about podcasting. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Well, you're very good. I might add that just by the way, you're a very good guest and you're, you sound great on radio. Um, okay. So 
I want to I want to get to a little bit more here, if you don't mind. If if your if your brother, and by the way, I think that's a great idea. Any way you can keep connecting with people. I mean, this therapist and me speaking now, and maybe even right. a bit of a life coach for you. But what I'm it's a kind of combination. But um, I think it'd be great for you to stay connected to this, both long term and and you know even short term. I don't know if you see a therapist, but maybe somebody to help you kind of deal with the short term kind of weight you're feeling because um, that, that you can get some fine forms of trauma around that. So just be cautious. Um, if your brother or mother or both were still with us, right? Or what do you think they were thinking when you wrote this from wherever they are right now? I think that I think that they're applauding, first of all. <laughs> um, I think that they both would be proud. I, I'm really sad that they're not here to um, kind of go through this whole cathartic, um, experience with me because they both passed, you know, mm-hmm. way too early in life. Um, and I, and just on a side, like, I think that's part of the reason why I had to write this because had they both been alive, we could have discussed it as a family and I may not have put this out there for the world to see. Right. Um, but, but I quite honestly think that they're both, you know, happy and glad that I did it. And we were an incredibly supportive party of three. So, and we always, you know, um, stood by each other no matter what, even if we thought something was just a little bit wrong or off. Um, and we always, always discuss things as a family. So I, I think that they're proud wherever they are. No doubt. I'm going to ask you a difficult question. You can you can t- take a pass if you choose to. Um, if you're in a position where the years that you were, you know, you and your dad both on the same planet at the same time, um, any thoughts that you were hoping at any point, even up to the very end that he was coming, he would come and ask for forgiveness and say he was sorry? I Not so much forgiveness, um, but I think just him coming to me and either telling me that he did love me or, you know, um, did, did mess up or did, you know, some kind of acknowledgement. There was never any acknowledgement and there was never any love. It was always very dark when he was around. It, it was a dark shadow. It was a dark feeling. And, if he would have come to me and it wasn't dark and you feel darkness, I don't, maybe it's just me. I'm, I'm like I said, an empath. So I feel stuff like that. But if I didn't feel any darkness and if I felt truth from him, I probably would have accepted him. Well, let me tell you something. You are um, an amazing inspiration. I, I want to thank you so much for spending the time. I hope that you find the continued healing that you need and um, and, and, and deserve to have. And um, I thank so much for sharing. And if you decide that you're going to be part of something or create something that you'd like some coverage on, let me know and we'll uh, get you back on to uh, tell the world what Amanda is doing next. Amanda Dennis, the uh, person writing the most honest obituary I've read probably in my life. And uh, we should commend her. Thank you so much for being with me tonight, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
thinking about having children, here's how much it costs, right? Well, with the cost of living rising so much day to day, month to month, week to week, year to year, a new data, some new data released by Statistics Canada on September the 29th, just a few days ago, a middle income family with two parents and two children spends on average $293,000 to raise one kid till the age of 17. So zero to 17, $293,000. So just about the cost of a beautiful black Bentley convertible with black leather interior and magnificent tires and rims. Ah, who am I kidding? I got three kids. That ain't happening. Well, my kids, thankfully, are grown up. But you know what? Along the way, the investment was definitely worth it, certainly for me. But not for everybody. It's difficult. It's, it, you know, I can tell you, my wife and I, Pumpkin, we had some, some difficult months, some difficult times, some difficult weeks, and so on, um, trying to keep it all together. And, you know, $293,000 divided by 17 years is somewhat affordable if you make all kinds of money. What's all kinds of money mean? So for lower income families earning less than $83,000 per year, right? So we're talking about middle income families spending two ninety three. dollars to raise a kid till seventeen, if you're if you're a lower income family, your only your 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 cost comes way down to two hundred and thirty eight thousand one hundred and ninety. Still big cheese, right? So higher income families making more than one hundred and thirty five thousand dollars gross yearly spend about four hundred and three thousand dollars per child. So it seems that if you have more, you spend more on your kids. If you have less, you seem to still spend on your kids. And the cost of raising children, although uh, the best investment I could ever s- imagine, certainly in my life. And by the way, it doesn't stop when they get older either, right? You want to help them buy a house if you can. God, you know, if you're fortunate, you can help them in some way, shape, or form, or help them, you know, give them a place to live in your basement, or and so they can, you know, put together a little cheese on their own to save up for later, right? But it's an investment, my friends. And by the way, not just an emotion, not just an, an economic investment of, of, of real dollars, but emotional investment and, and, and an investment of, of freedom and, and, and privacy. If you have kids, you know what I mean. If they've just moved out, you know what I mean. If they're still living with you, you know what I mean. If you don't have them, you know what I mean. You know, but again, for the right person, certainly for me and for my wife and my family, I can't think of ever doing it differently. If the children live more, more, if the children live five years in the family home longer than that age, so from 18 to 22, you're spending an additional 68 to $117,000 per kid, depending on the family size and how much the family earns and so on. So if the fa- if, if, it's, if we've now found that families spend almost a third of their income on housing, 20% on transportation, 17% on food, 14% on childcare and education, not a lot left, right? New child care measures have daycare fees by, uh, have cut daycare fees by 50%, but you know, it's still, still a ton of money. So even so with inflation, it's still ec- somewhat economical to raise a kid. And, and I'm suggesting that to raise a child at, in this way, shape or form, it should, should, if you're investing in your children financially, which means you're investing in them, hopefully emotionally, not just financially, um, that it's also going to lead to a child who will do well or do better and be able to support themselves 
earlier in life and perhaps make, you know, an excellent living, a, a home run of a living somewhere down the road and help you as you get older. By the way, that happens too. You know, if you afford to send your kids off to college, university, trade school, somewhere, but, and I say trade school because if you're a plumber today, you're making real money, like real money, six figures for sure. If you're working for somebody, if you're working for yourself, much more than that. Takes quite a, quite a few years in a law firm to make that kind of money, and certainly in an accounting firm, the same. Teacher's not too far behind. So that's why I say trade school. If you invest in these opportunities for your children and give them the chance to grow, become independent, become empowered, become responsible, become skilled and talent, use their talents in, in ways that are, are, are you know, set up for success, then it's a great investment because somewhere down the road they may be able to help you. And that's not the reason for doing it and that's not the spin I'm trying to put on it. But if you decide that you're with someone that you love and you care about, and you want to have children with, I know I'm laying on all these values, right? If there's someone you choose to have a child with, obviously I think the healthiest way is when you want to do it together for most of the same reasons, then it's a beautiful thing. But it can't be something that you think about kind of helter-skelter and we'll see how it goes and play it by ear. You have to be prepared for the investment financially. You have to be prepared more so for the investment emotionally, for the years of not being able to travel without children, if that's who you are, for the years of not being able to stay out late with your your partner on a Saturday night like you used to before kids, if that's who you are. I mean, sure, there's babysitters, there's family, you know, family members, if you're blessed to have that kind of support, great. If you don't, you know, childcare is expensive, even a babysitter. Someone was telling me the 17-year-old girl in their neighborhood that's babysitting her two children, age 7 and 11, I think is charging $25 an hour. (laughs) I remember babysitting for $10 an hour and all the food I could eat. So I think you have to recognize that the cost of raising children, both financial and emotional, is a great investment. But it requires you to, to modify your life and to take the time to coddle and care for your investment. You know that guy that buys the car around the corner? You know, spends $75,000 on a redone Corvette from 1960-something, and it's spectacular. The interior shines, the outside shines, drives it like four times a year, and it's always covered in his, in his, uh, in his garage. You need to treat your kids like that. You need to treat your kids like the favorite car you've got in the garage or that fancy diamond ring that you, you know, you, that you got when you were married or, or the house that you live in or whatever your material lifestyle things are, children need more coddling, more polishing, more shining, more time to get air and sunshine, more time to stretch their legs, let out the clutch, so to speak. So if you're going to pay the dollars, and invest the time, may as well do a good job of it. That's what I tell kids all the time. If you're going to go to school, you may as well do well. You're going to go anyway, right? Why waste your time? So I I guess what I'm saying at the end of all of this is there is a real relationship situation here in terms of deciding whether you want to have children or don't have children. And I don't mean it's like, I want to have kids, she doesn't. Like a, a real conversation about what's involved here an honest conversation about what's involved here. 
and about whether you're both prepared to make that investment, both financially, emotionally, and otherwise. Because it's not for everybody. Not everybody has that opportunity to, to, uh, to, to have children. Some want them desperately and aren't physically capable of having them. Some people have children unexpectedly and do the best they can as they go. Some, some holding some form of grudge and, and ill feeling around it, not around the kid in particular, but the fact that they have a kid or kids. But it's the greatest blessing in the world, my friends, if it's something that you want and that you're open to that you're prepared for, and that you're going to invest in. So I know I keep going around and around in circles because the whole conversation is about the cost of raising children today in Canada. And we're talking about money and school and daycare and clothing and a bike once in a while if they're lucky and some games if they play those things and trips if you have the opportunity and a summer camp thing maybe once in a blue moon if you can afford it or not or something special for your kids we all try to do it right that's the easy conversation the difficult conversation is what does it really take to raise a kid to raise a healthy kid what's a healthy kid look like you know people tell me all the time my 15 year old is so headstrong he stands up for himself and does blah, blah. sometimes i just can't stand it and i look at him i look at them and i go wow you've done a great job as a parent well, what do you mean kids only do that if they feel empowered and confident kids that stand up and advocate for themselves in a polite proper way do it because they're empowered and confident some do it because they're mean and angry for whatever else you did in the household that's not right whoa well why you blaming the parents blaming the parents i'm telling you 15 and 16 and 17, 18, 19, 13, that, that whole, kids don't get messed up by themselves. And chances are they didn't learn it at school. So let's make a great investment in our kids, both in time, money, effort, opportunity, transparency, sharing, giving, all that stuff. Very important. Because if you want to have children, you invest in a lifetime for you and for them. You know, going to a doctor these days, you know, lots of people love their doctor, trust their doctor, you know, they're friendly and kind and open and, you know, smart and seem to be available and so on. And, you know, you just don't even think twice about who they are as a person, really. You just kind of like them as a doctor. You know, I've got a family doctor who's, who's, who's wonderful. He's, he's, you know, I don't know him that well as a human being, but in terms of my needs, my needs as a doctor, he's great. Well, some doctors do things they shouldn't. And when they get caught, they get in front of something called the discipline panel. If they do something really wrong, they're brought before criminal court. So we're talking about a guy, his name is Javed uh, Pirovi. And he lives, he is um, a, a doctor in... Uh, Toronto, and he was previously found to have sexually abused four female patients in a notorious case. It shocked the public, added pressure on the provincial government in Ontario to make the changes. And um, he then um, went on, that they, inc- they included that, by the way, so here's, the, here's what happened. He was a no-show on, this is an article, uh, goes back some time. So to, a couple of weeks ago, a week, week or so ago, uh, missed his no-show on his court case. And the panel found he yet uh, again committed professional misconduct, this time for violating conditions on his license, 
which was imposed as a result of the prior sexual abuse. Guy's still practicing medicine. You getting me here? You paying attention to what's up? Like this guy's still practicing medicine. And they included that he only see female patients in the presence of a practice monitor approved by the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario and that he post a sign making the condition clear in his waiting room and examination rooms. Okay. Number one, why is it so important to, for him to keep practicing medicine when he's abused, uh, alleged to have abused, uh, he was found to have abused, I guess he was convicted for sure. So, it, you know, as part of this, now they're suggesting that it's okay, you can continue to treat females, but you have to have some kind of female or, or some kind of, you know, practice monitor in there with you. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be with a doctor that's got a conduct monitor beside him, making sure he's doing the right thing. I don't need that that doctor that badly. Aren't you with me? You got to be with me right now, shaking your head, going, yeah, man, Yona's right on the money. For sure I am. And a sign in his lobby, in his, in his waiting room that says he's not allowed to practice without someone supervising him. Like I'm doing an about face. I'm leaving the room and I'm like, holy cow. How was he even able to practice? Well, those conditions were added in 2016 by a different panel after finding that he sexually abused four women patients by cupping their breasts or tweaking their nipples with no reason to do so while practicing at a walk-in clinic. So it's not like the guy's a world-class gynecologist or obstetrician and he just has a skill set that you know women would be at risk if he wasn't around and therefore needed his medical skill and as, as much as he's you know a creep so the panel sparked outrage by letting him keep his job and handed him a six month suspension seriously I'll tell you if anybody touched me in the wrong place at the wrong time doctor or not he's going to the hospital in an ambulance I'm not waiting for some panel to make a decision to take, take him off the street for six months. They found that he could improve with counseling. So they, uh, the, the, the college prosecutors urged the panel to revoke his license and unsuccessfully fought all the way through the Ontario Court of Appeal to overturn the decision. This is going through lawmaker by lawmaker by lawmaker. The guy still gets to practice law, uh, practice medicine. So on the, on the, recently in the, the past few weeks, he started, uh, he was given a seven-month suspension starting October 10th for violating his license conditions. What happened is he hid the note, he hid the letter. The decision came following a, a request by college prosecutors and, and um, his lawyer, who entered a plea of no contest on the doctor's behalf. The plea means he doesn't admit guilt, but consents to the panel accepting the allegations. It's ridiculous. They gave him a month more for not obeying his conditions, a month longer than the six months they gave him for actually abusing the women. Like, holy cow, man. What kind of world are we living in? So one of his victims, her name is uh, Tamara Dixon, a very, a very um, uh, a champion of a woman to stand up and, make, and, and, and talk about this openly. I'm just appalled at the whole thing, she says. She was recently identified as Ms. X, during the disciplinary procedures, uh, but her name was removed in 2016 so that she could speak openly, the ban on her name. So they removed that. I have zero confidence in the college. It's a joke to me, put it lightly. She said it's just been confirmed again today. Is the, are these like the good guys looking after the good guys, so to speak, or bad guys looking after bad guys? 
And if you're a member of the College of Physicians and Surgeons, you'd want to make sure that you don't have a, bad, a lot of really you know, creepy people out there that are doing horrible things that make your college look bad. Is that what this is about? We want to kind of keep it under the, under the mat? Kind of like Amanda's family about her abuse. If you heard the story in the, in the previous hour about the woman who wrote the, uh, the, um, the nasty obituary, the truthful but nasty obituary. Are we, is that what we're doing here? Sweeping this under the carpet? So the virtual proceedings took place. They were delayed as everyone showed up except for the doctor himself. He told the panel that uh, his lawyer told the panel that he mailed them 15 minutes prior to the start of the hearing, started the hearing to say that he wasn't feeling well. He's been having health problems over the past couple of weeks, and he said suffering from nausea and vertigo this morning and essentially can't get out of bed, according to his lawyer. So I don't think he'll be attending, though he's aware that the attendance is required. So the panel said he'll have to attend at a later date to publicly rep- be reprimanded for his last latest findings of professional misconduct, and there was an additional cost added. As a result, the college told him in the fall of 2021 that it was terminating its approval of his practice monitor. So the female patients reported in 2021 that they each had an appointment with him at his North Carolina clinic in the absence of a college-approved practice monitor, and two other patients said that they had, they had multiple appointments with him and that the monitor would sometimes leave the room. So the college in the, in the fall of 2021, it was terminating its approval of the practice monitor, barring him from seeing female patients at all. Like, I, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, this is a bad dream, right? still gets to practice medicine. The monitor recorded the names of the patients in a log, leaving it in an unlocked office drawer. Blah, blah, blah. You can imagine. A college-approved monitor, someone to police its own people. The panel was also told that the sign in his waiting room that indicated the conditions on his license would fold it in half on several occasions so not to be visible. So not only did the guy, was he found guilty of abusing women, given a golden parachute sentence as far as I'm concerned from the college's perspective right he was also suspended for for a couple of months in 2019 for using his medical office to initiate a social relationship with a young female patient like this guy's creepy shouldn't have a medical license shouldn't be around people where they may need to lie down take off their clothes and let him touch them you know a doctor has the license to touch you with your permission and I don't know about you, but before someone's sticking anything anywhere or touching anything that shouldn't normally be touched, and his hand isn't on the other end of an instrument, like a stethoscope or something, I'm asking questions. Do you really need to do that right now? And what are we doing that for? So am I, that make me a difficult patient? I don't know. But let me tell you, my friends, if you're listening to this right now, if you're going to catch the podcast later on, which I hope you do if you can't make it live, tell people they need to catch up on this in the podcast, stay aware, stay alert, be an advocate for yourself. If it doesn't smell right, it's probably not right. If it feels creepy, it's probably creepy. If you get that spidey sense, pay attention to it. Very important. I don't know if you uh, are kind of a fussy eater, not a fussy eater, if you really pay too much attention to where you eat or what kind of food you eat or where, who's preparing it. But I'll tell you something. Most places that provide, you know, uh, catered food 
one would think that they're coming from a safe environment, right? Somebody delivers something to my house or they're catering an event or something. I go to some kind of dinner that my wife uh, gets invited to because she's in the fundraising business. So we'll go to a dinner. I sit down to a catered meal. Generally, I'm content with the fact that it's a kosher meal because that's what they proclaim it is. Otherwise, I ask for one. Otherwise, I don't eat or eat vegetarian if I have to, if I'm really stuck. But I never think about where it's coming from. I, I, I You know, honestly. I don't, I don't think about where the, 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 the prep kitchen is located or who's behind it or if they're all wearing gloves. I just assume so. I know what you do when you assume, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But listen, if, if they're legit and they're delivering and I'm in, a, I'm in a legit location, I'm not in some you know funky little backroom place in, in Nowheresville, Ontario in some barn converted to a, to a dance hall with food coming in that should be cooked and doesn't look so cooked and half a broiler and not a broiler and using barbecues that don't work. Okay, I'm already on top of it. I'm, I'm not eating the food. I'll listen to the music, I'll have a soft drink and I'll leave, right? Well, if you send your kid to daycare, and the daycare program includes a food program. Don't you think you should be able to sleep at night thinking absolutely your kids are going to get safe, healthy food because A, it's a daycare. So they're under all kinds, you would hope, clearly not as it turns out, on top of all kinds of other supervisions that should be in place to just provide licensed daycares with oversight. But also the food and health and drug people. I, I run treatment centers that uh, help people that deal with the mental health and addiction. They're residential centers as well as, as outpatient uh, virtual recovery. But uh, my point is we're checked on all the time. We have health the people come, public health people come through our kitchens and our facilities all the time. And we welcome them because we want to make sure we're not making people sick. Well, what happened in Calgary is a bunch of daycares got food from an organization. Some, one of the daycares was actually part of the organization's own program. Uh, but the city of Calgary announced that the Fueling Mines Inc. and its two directors face a total of 12 charges under municipal business bylaws and face a total fine of up to $120,000. Why? Because number of cases plateaued to 351 kids and tests and interviews indicate that the cause of the outbreak was meatloaf and vegan loaf coming from improper facilities or unpro- improperly um, cared for uh, production um, program, I guess, right, for lack of a better word. He said that there are 37 confirmed secondary cases and four children remain in hospital. Feeling Minds provided meals to six of its own daycares that were affected by the outbreak, which was declared on September the 4th, and also five separate daycares. It's going back a, a bit, right? It's a month-old story, but it's still we're still talking about it because there's really no, we're not finding any real solution to what's going on. But anyway, the city alleges Fueling Mines did not have the proper license to serve the other five locations that weren't part of theirs. So that number one, they were outside of, they were just providing uh, unlicensed catering to other facilities that weren't under their jurisdiction. So one would say they have some right to feed their own people, but in a, in a program, in a, in a kitchen, in a facility that is properly vetted and, and properly um, you know, uh, inspected such that these kinds of things shouldn't happen. The investigation into the cause of the outbreak included interviews with hundreds of parents and daycare staffers and tested 44 food samples. 44 samples. We believe that the meatloaf and vegan loaf were, the served, were served for lunch uh, on or about August 29th, which contained uh, the E. coli bacteria that led to the infections. Uh, neither of these items could be tested as they were eaten, either eaten or discarded before the outbreak was even identified. 
Because what happened was a bunch of kids started coming home getting sick. And then a bunch more kids came home and started getting sick. And then he started looking at this and the province had to hire a third party to verify it, you know, to verify what was going on here. So the premier of the uh, premier, uh, Danielle Smith said, former Calgary police chief Rick Hansen would lead a panel to investigate what went wrong and make recommendations on how to make commercially prepared food safer in daycares. Yeah. You make it the same way as you do in a restaurant. You treat these places like a restaurant. You have inspectors come through them like a restaurant. Nothing seems not something special for daycare. They should be on the ultimate side, on the highest side of doing it right. It should be hospital grade kitchen, man, around children who are easily easily can can get something in their system a, a, a little a little a little bit of bacteria and they're and they're sick for you know 24 hours of diarrhea and fever and it's gone but it doesn't take much for a kids you know kids little system to get all messed up smith said the panel does not have a set timeline of course not but she expects to hear from him monthly and would implement interim recommendations as they come along he's going to be joined by alberta parents child care operators and food service operators and food safety and public health experts why are they coming to this now? That's the question, right? Does it take a whole bunch of kids to get sick before someone says, oh, I guess we better pay attention to what we're feeding our children and to make sure it's healthy? Who's also making sure, by the way, it's nutritious and it's what kids should be eating, right? So the panel will be examining all aspects of this tragic situation, they go on to say, large and small, as well as taking a broader look at legislation regulations that govern, govern, govern food safety in our province. So she said she met with parents affected by the children. A policy and change would be in place and so on, you know, all the political speak. So Health Minister Andrea Lagrange and Cyril Turton, Minister for Children and Family Services, uh, already reviewed food handling in commercial daycare kitchens. So the kitchen remains clo- their kitchens remain closed and in recent months has been flagged for numerous health violations, including food transportation concerns. They were already flagged. Right? They were already flagged, according to the health minister and the Minister for Children and Family Services in Alberta, I believe. Yes. So the one has to ask the question, if, they've already on, if they're already on the radar, if they're already on the radar for, uh, you know, for some kind of infraction, why are they then allowed then to continue to, 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 to serve kids? Like, who's, who's policing this stuff? Well, the opposition NDP critic, uh, uh, Diana Batten, she said that for children, uh, she's the critic for children and uh, child care and, and child and family services, that Wednesday's developments were a good start to get the answers. We really need help. We need, really need to help some of these families I'm speaking with. However, it, ter- it brings up and illustrates there's a lot of problems inside the system, so on and so on, more, more political speak. It doesn't help anybody. It's just spending money and more money and honestly putting a Band-Aid on, like all these, all these committees and, and, and investigations, they served bad food because they weren't properly super, supervised. They served bad food because maybe there was a problem with their, with their uh, refrigeration. Maybe they had some kind of blackout. Maybe the, they, were using, you know, they were using product that was a, was a little bit out of the stale date. Who knows? But now the provinces have promised parents Affected by the closures of the 11 daycares involved, a one-time payment of $2,000. Yeah, what are you going to do with that? You're going to stay home with your kids? You're going to suddenly find, you know, daycare? $2,000 is what? For the average Canadian, maybe half a, half a month's pay? If you're making fifty grand a year? 
And they've now since reopened. So they were closed around the middle of September, but they've now reopened. But eight more daycare space closures or partial closures in the days that followed as secondary cases were identified. So last week, the compensation program would, according to Smith, the minister said, or the premier said, would only be available to parents of the 11 daycares at the root of the outbreak. So, I don't know. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It doesn't sound like we're doing, these people are at their best at all. At all. And and to now just be giving it, you know, some form of lip service and putting together, you know, form, some form of, of, you know, or, or some form of committee to investigate this. Like, shame on these adults, man. Shame on these people. You can't get away with that in a, in a, in a, in a, a democratic country in North America. Like, we just can't treat our children like you would treat animals. And by the way, I once did a show where we feed our pets sometimes better than we feed our kids. Anyway, enough. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your pets, your seniors? If you don't know where they are, you probably should check them out. If you're not quite sure and you're concerned and you can't get to them, you can always call 911 and ask for something called a wellness check. That just makes sure that no one's going to get arrested, probably if they're not doing anything wrong, but just to make sure everybody's where they need to be and that they're healthy. And that way you can sleep at night. So I'll tell you, if you are a referee, if you have been involved in, in youth sports or even, you know, organized adult sports, and seeing how people talk to and treat referees, you would be appalled. Well, it really happens. It's disgusting. You know, you, ter- you, talk, you heard the story of horrible, the, once there were stories about horrible hockey parents. Well, there's horrible soccer parents and horrible baseball parents and horrible basketball parents. Parents just seem to forget that when they come to watch their children play, or if you're an adult and you're coming to watch somebody in an adult league come and play, the key component to the experience is watch. That means we use our eyes. And I'm not trying to be sarcastic or cute. I'm just trying to explain that what's leading to this story is we sometimes, as parents or as loved ones or as fans, lose our stuff on the wrong people, meaning no one. We shouldn't be venting the fact that you think your kid should have scored that goal and how unfair it was that the boy in front of them properly took the ball away from him when he was dribbling it down the, the court or took the puck away because he was on his way to the net and, and you want to call a, 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 a some kind of infraction because all of a sudden now you're an expert at this sport, which 90% of us aren't, 95% of us aren't. So you start screaming and yelling at the referees. They take horrible abuse. They get beaten up in, they get beaten up in parking lots. They get harassed in public washrooms at, at arenas and, and, and sports facilities. Yeah, man, can you believe that? Harassing your kid's soccer referee because he missed a call and as a result, your kid didn't score the goal. We lose our stuff. We forget to be good parents by modeling healthy behavior. And when your parents see you screaming and yelling from the sidelines, guess what they're going to do as they get older? They're going to scream and yell too. And if you abuse the referees around them, The so-called officials, that's why they're there, because they're officials. They know what they're talking about. They are official. Start abusing them. What's the chance that your loved one or your kid is going to respect them at all? So you get the shouts from the stands, right? Way to go. Well done. And then there's a lot of parents that scream and yell. 
So according to Angelina uh, Baldino, she's an assistant referee. She had two video. She had a video camera strapped to her chest. A stark reminder that we often come from parents and spectators in the stands, coaches on the sidelines, the players on the field. It's not so nice. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to gain and grab the actual live footage and data and use that sometimes in, in, um, in you know, imposing some kind of infraction or penalty, right? Some kind of you know, policy around a penalty for whatever the sport is banning somebody from an arena, banning somebody from a field, having them charged criminally. Oh yeah. Some of this threatening stuff is absolutely, according to the criminal code, 110%, you're, you know, you're at the very least going to be convicted and get some kind of fine or, or something the first time, second time, not so much. Third time, you're going to go do some kind of jail time because you obviously have an anger problem. If you can't keep your stuff together and you're yelling and screaming like a crazy person, that's not a clinical term, a crazy person, at a soccer field or on a baseball, a basketball court or at, at, a, at a hockey arena. So the idea is that, it's, it, you, that whether these body cams are considered for the, throughout leagues in Ontario or d- will depend on the results of this um, North American project. But the idea, according to the exec, uh, chief executive, John, um, Johnny Measley, uh, Misley, I'm sorry, Johnny Misley is the chief executive of Ontario Soccer. For now, there are 32 cameras in the field focused on 8, under to, ele- eight to 11 underage group with an additional 18 cameras used randomly in Ontario Player Development League games. Um, so they're using these to actually determine how people behave and the footage captured by the devices when the referees push the record button can be used as evidence, as I said, in an abuse or maltreatment case by the Ontario Soccer, uh, but, but, excuse me, Ontario Soccer hopes just having them will be a deterrent enough. So here's the question. Here's the magic question you're going to ask yourself. What I'm asking you right now, just contemplate it for a second. What's the likelihood that you're going to lose your stuff in front of somebody who's recording you? Right? Not so much. Chances are we're going to have better behavior. We do have better behavior. There's statistics around it. Better behaved when we think that we're being seen or being surveyed in some way through surveillance equipment. That, you know, then when you, you misbehave yourself and there's cameras around, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, there, there was a time when I was a kid where on my way home, if I had to, you know, I had to pee and there was no washroom around or no Johnny on the spot because I'd do one of those, you know, little, little uh, porta potty things, I'd find the back of a building somewhere, usually a, a retail mall that was closed and pee outside against the fence near a tree. Like, I'm not embarrassed to say so. Wouldn't think of doing it if there was a camera anywhere. There weren't cameras around in those days. I don't be outside anymore. I don't have to. But the, the idea is that when people are watching us, we should behave better. That's typically what the intent of, sur- of, of, of surveillance is, that you're supposed to behave better. You show up to a house that you're thinking about breaking into, and there's signs all over the place that said, this house is under surveillance by such and such and such security company, and you look up and you see red lights flashing and cameras everywhere, you're going to think twice about breaking into that house. So the idea of having some form of deterrent worn by people who take abuse is not a bad one. So let me tell you a real life story. I've often worked with people, um, people who are coming out of um, toxic relationships, marriages in many cases, uh, where one or both uh, have a substance abuse issue and one and the other or the other or sometimes both 
uh, get the help that they need, and in the process decide that the marriage isn't working. Um, it's usually one or the other, not usually both of them. Consequently, it's not so friendly. And in certainly in Ontario, you can't really leave the household. Once you do, it's sort of like you're abandoning it, and it has a lot to do with your your rights in terms of ownership of the property and access to children and custody and all that stuff. So a good lawyer will tell you not to leave the home, move to another room in the house and do the best you can. But you might have to do that for three to six months. Meantime, your spouse, him or her, whatever, your spouse is constantly in your face, constantly yelling at you, constantly putting you down, constantly being snarky, constantly trying to get you to do something stupid so they can phone the police and get you kicked out of the house to diminish your opportunity to get your share or whatever. There's some kind of, kind of financial or material benefit or they don't do it. So I started having my guys and my women, whoever, my, my, my clients, my patients, wear body cams. We found them on Amazon for about 200 bucks. They were good, really good ones. Wearing a body cam, it's obvious you're wearing a body cam. Their lawyer knew they were wearing a body cam. Everyone knew they were wearing a body cam. And all of the data went directly to the lawyer's um, phone or the lawyer's uh, computer system so that no one could review it, but it was used for evidence when necessary. So I'll tell you, it reduced the amount of abuse these people took by up to 75% in some cases, and at least 50% in every other case. Because the one or the other partner, spouse or otherwise, definitely thought twice about yelling or screaming or sticking their fingers in the face of the person or giving them a little nudge or keeping something from them or doing something stupid in the middle of the night, like coming into their room and turning on the light and yelling and screaming. Yeah, people do that. So body cams, unfortunately, are a good idea because unfortunately we live in a society where we're not always at our best and we tend to vent at people and do things to people and make few people feel unsafe and insecure. So these types of things become a somewhat of a deterrent. And again, it only works if the data is going somewhere else. Otherwise, you have to deal with the potential abuse of someone grabbing the camera when you're sleeping and not paying attention, you know, whatever. There's, it's, not, it's not flawless for sure. So there are signs now around hockey, around these soccer facilities that, where, the, where the, the folks that are, the referees that are testing this body cam program saying that, you know, referees are wearing body cams and are, you know, under, are, you are being, sur- your, 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 your communication with them is, is under surveillance or something like that. I'm making up the sign, but I'm assuming that's what it says because I haven't seen a real, a real sign to look at or read to you. So the idea of it as a deterrent is a brilliant idea. The idea of being able to share that information and share, you know, that information down the road in terms of training coaches and referees and people in terms of what to watch out for. And better still, turning it into a what not to do for parents before their kids get signed up for a sport. And parents need to sign that they saw the bit, that they saw it online, like doing an online test or exam. They saw all of the, all of the modules and they agree to them by giving them a check mark. So that's my thought on body cams. They can be used for good. They can be used for evil. Your choice up to you. Thanksgiving weekend. It should be a blast. Make it the best time ever because that's all you got, man. You got today and tomorrow and, uh, you know, that's the best you can do at best. Hopefully you'll have more days than that for sure, but you want to live in the moment, make it the best time you can and make it the experience, make your experience living in this world as comfortable and as uplifting and, 
helping you be at your best as much as possible, right? That's the whole idea at the end of the day is that whatever we're doing, we're trying to do it and be at our best in the process. Well, if you're a senior, if you're a retiree, not necessarily a senior, it depends on what you call a retiree, but if you're a retiree, some retirees, by the way, are 55. You know, maybe that's a senior. I don't think so, but whatever. Um, I think a senior today's, I feel it should be like 80 because 65, 70, 75 is vibrant, exciting, and still like tons and tons, tons and tons and tons left to, to, to give back and make a difference. But if you choose to take off with your partner or yourself or your buddies and, and figure out, you know, now's time to change my life and I want to live in a, uh, in a retirement facility, a senior's home, it's expensive. So this woman, Judy Verrill, she retired from her role uh, she had a job as a telecom uh, company. She's building a successful career, 35 years. And she uh, founding herself at work again now at 64 years of age because the sting of inflation, many, many retirees are now going back to work. And the spin of the story is that many, like there's a, a, a couple of, uh, recently in Australia, there was a story about a couple in Australia that booked five years on a cruise ship ahead of time in order to live on the cruise ship for the next five years because they couldn't get into a retirement, a senior's retirement facility that was affordable. It was cheaper to live on a cruise ship for five years. Now, they went from ship to ship and different, uh, different voyages and so on. They're in the midst of it still. Uh, I think they're, they're probably partway, maybe two, two and a half years through their, their, their journey, so to speak. Well, they're finding that that's the case because the cost of everything as a senior is through the roof. Well, the cost for everything for everybody is through the roof. But you would think that a retiree, for the most part, most retirees, because they're retirees, are on some kind of fixed income or pension or both. So this person, this Judy that we're talking about, after you know working for 35 years and being you know 64 years of age, which, by the way, is still so young, right? Still so young, uh, decided she needed to go back to work because she couldn't cut it. Her pre-tax pension was 3900 a month. And her rent was $2,500, plus utilities, plus food, plus car payment, right? Couldn't cut it. So she went back to work. She's a single person, no shared income that she can rely on. She had to go back to work. So I think what's important to understand here is the planning around retirement. And I think that the idea, perhaps, if you're looking at a second iteration a second iteration of who you are and who you want to be in the next part of your life because at 65, 70, these days to get to 85, 90 is not a big stretch if you take care of yourself and see a doctor and have some proper you know, medical uh, care and, and deal with your physical and mental health properly. Getting to 80, 85, 90, not a big deal, right? So still lots of time left. A passion career might be a way to go if that's where you find yourself. But how do you plan for this ahead of time? How do you stay ahead of it? Yona, how do you stay ahead of it is going to be the question. How do I make sure I don't find myself in this situation where I have to go back to work at retirement? Well, the number one question I would have is, do you need to retire right now? Is there a reason why you need to retire right now? If you don't need to retire right now, most companies that you've worked for, in, in Judy's case, for 35 years, would pay her handsomely as a consultant to continue to be available three days a week and probably would give her enough money to add what she needs to the bottom line of the 3900 that she gets pre-tax on her on her on her ta- on her pension program. So it's not being able to afford it's, it's one thing is worrying about not being able to afford stuff today it's also worrying about not being able to afford stuff going into the future. 
you know, she's had to move out of her house, change the way she lives. She was raising a bunch of dogs. She can't do that anymore. According to the uh, Royal Bank of Canada online survey in June of this year, 1,500 Canadian adults found 39% of them, uh, res- 39% of the respondents felt that inflation continues into 2024. They fear that it will take them longer to retire, while 21% say they might have to go back to work. So the postponement of retirement is one solution. Going back to work in some kind of passion job might be another, perhaps. You know, I know a lot of folks, a lot of police officers, firefighters, that at, you know, 55, 56 have put in their 30 or more, 35 sometimes. They start early, 20, right? And uh, our carpenters, they like to work with wood. They, you know, sell little things online. You know, they like doing home renovations. They do it for a few friends here and there on weekends and their time off. So retirement for them is I'm stopping to work at the, as a firefighter. I'm going to take my full firefighter pension, and now I'm going to be a, uh, a, a, a Mr. Fix-It, or I'm going to build some furniture, or I'm, you know, something for the next 20 years of my life. Stopping work and doing nothing, not having a good plan into retirement, leads to poor mental health, substance abuse, physical, um, you know, physical issues, you know, physical ailment issues in terms of your health and so on. It's just there needs to be a plan for everybody. So the fear factor is, what's it going to be like tomorrow? And the challenge then, if you're, if you're a person in retirement, the challenge is, who the hell is going to hire you? Who's hiring a 65-year-old for a new job? Well, these days it's, it's, it's retail because they can't find anybody. It's food service because they can't find anybody. So you're finding that people that, you know, bank managers, you know, people that had, you know, big, big paying jobs are now working for just above minimum wage just to make the, all the pieces fit. You know, good retirement today from what you had set up 25 years ago isn't what it needs to be today to go take you into the next 20 years. Clearly, I'm not a financial planner from this topic and this conversation we're having, but my my point is that some forward thought into what's life going to be like when, right? When I'm 65, when I'm 70, when I retire, if I retire, I, I can't think of giving up and I don't have to at this point yet, but I can't think of not working at some in some way, shape, or form. Certainly doing radio and doing my coaching, maybe back off from, from some of the therapy stuff sooner than later because it gets to be a little much after these many decades. But, you know, the iteration is just a work in progress. I mean, it's always been a work in progress. So where are you going to find the kind of job? So there used to be available, I'm not sure there still is, but there used to be mentoring programs available through the Canadian uh, Development Bank, um, and they would offer, you know, they would offer experienced retired executives to small up-and-coming um, 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 startups that were using some of the funding available through the through the development bank. So they would allow certain, exe- you know, make uh, certain executives available to them. The executives got paid, so that would be an interesting job for someone in retirement. You need to learn how to retire, same as you need to learn how to get a job. You need to learn how to retire. What does that look like? How do I make that work for me? How do I do that and still have the flexibility to do some traveling that I've longed for all these years? Spend time on, on, my, on my tennis game or my golf game or in the gym or you know swimming or doing whatever. So there's lots of opportunities for you going forward as long as you know there's things like reverse mortgages. I don't want to get into it, but there's lots of things. If you own your own home, uh, there's, there's options for you. But I don't know. I don't think I want to live on a cruise ship for five years. Sounds like a pretty good plan if that's what they're up for. But I also don't want to find myself, 
you know, sitting at 70 or 75 or 80, wondering how much longer I can afford to live. Because there's nothing more deterring for someone who's not feeling well than thinking about how much of a burden they might be on their children or how difficult it might be to continue to survive this lifestyle and continue to pay rent or whatever they have to do wherever they are not to be a burden on their children or on the community or on the, on the, on the public. Continuing to be vital, continuing to be necessary, continuing to be a part of the, the, the conversation. Relevant is a good term lots of people talk about in their senior years. So there you have it. Make a plan if you're not there yet, if you're in the middle of retirement now and you're thinking, yeah, I could make some extra money, find something to do with your time if you're not doing it. And if you can do that and make some cheese at the same time, it doesn't all have to be volunteer. You know, maybe someone there's out there that where you can be a helper and some crew or work in a store that's interesting to you because you happen to like what they sell or something, right? Lots of people, I found many women that I know in retirement end up working in clothing stores and jewelry stores and places they'd like to be because that's where they like to be. So retirement is as you set it up if you're able to do so. It takes thought. And it needs to be done years ahead of the actual trigger date. And if you can postpone it because you're not ready, that's definitely the way to go for sure. 